Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast contains explicit language. This week, Republicans succeeded in passing their tax bill. So what did Arthur have for lunch? Republicans won on taxes but are looking shaky on children's health insurance, keeping the government open, and saving dreamers from deportation. We talked to Adrian Reyna, a dreamer who's been lobbying Congress. And Zach Carter has a surprising amount of things to say about A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Season's greetings. I'm Arthur Delaney. And I'm Elise Foley. And this is So That Happened, the HuffPost politics podcast about things that happened in politics. Hello, this is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my colleagues, S.V. Date. Hey there. And Elise Foley. Hello. And we're here to discuss Republicans successfully passing their big sweeping tax legislation, which uh, was never a sure thing, though it seemed increasingly likely and up until the point that, yes, they did it this week. Uh, there was a little goof where they the House had to vote twice after the Senate parliamentarian struck out extraneous provisions. Uh, And that was funny and emblematic of the uh, rushed and sloppy process they've used, but it didn't really matter. This sucker is going to become law soon, and there will be new tax rates for next year. And I thought it would be good for us to explain what's in the bill. First and foremost, Sharish, there is a giant tax cut for corporations. That's right. This is for... Corporations as we traditionally understand them, like Exxon or Target or any large company that's organized under you know, what they call uh, ch- the, the Chapter C. The, it's a C Corp. It's a normal old company. It's getting a huge tax break under this thing. It, you know, the top rate had been 35%. It'll now be 21%. That's a 40% cut. Right. So nobody paid that 35% rate. Uh, you know, the, the, the idea that that was a high rate was like the justification – but just like with right. households, you get deductions, so your effective rate is much lower. So now they'll be able to take deductions against this much lower rate. That's true. I, I, they did get rid of some of those deductions. And uh, you know they, they talk about something called the expensing change, which allows these companies to take all their – or take a lot of their uh, – you know, for capital investments up front – but you know, there's a back end savings there. I mean, if you you can only expense a large piece of machinery once, regardless of whether you do it over time yeah, for, or whether you do well, it up front. So, for anyone who cares, the deductions that were curtailed for businesses have to do with uh, the amount you can claim as a net operating loss and the amount you spend on interest. That's right, and that's um, actually kind of a, a probably a, a good reform, so that you you're not able to just borrow forever and then keep having the taxpayers help you with that. Listener, you may also have heard that there are tax cuts for households. The individual income tax brackets get pushed way up the income scale so that uh, your income is subject to lower rates of taxation effectively. 
And most people will see a tax cut, and I think most people will see a tax cut uh, in their paycheck in the form of less income being withheld from your pay according to your W-2 form or your W-4 form, excuse me. That's that's right. Now, those cuts are not going to be big unless you happen to be making a lot of money to start with. So, yeah. you know, for you know, the people in the middle class, say, making fifty to 100000 a year, that cut is going to be about 8% or so. Um, it works out to, you know, if your household is making like 60000 a year, you'll probably get, I don't know, Forty dollars per pay period if you're paid twice a month. So yeah, you know, it's it's a lot of people probably wouldn't notice that, right? Like if it's coming out of their paycheck. That's true. That's true. And you know, it depends how closely you look at your paycheck. But remember, I don't look the, closely the, at my paycheck. Yeah. The George W. Bush tax cuts <laughs> were start. larger than these, and people didn't think they got a tax cut. You know, after it passed, they thought, "What tax cut?" They thought their taxes had, had been going up. And why? So, why is that? Because partly because Republicans keep saying all the time, regardless of what the finances of the country are, regardless of what the tax code is, you're paying too much. Taxes are too high. Taxes so are they, they going to have to stop that? I mean, why? Well, because <laughs> then it looks like their one big achievement for the entire year isn't that good. Right, Are they going to have to stop railing against, like, we, you pay too much in taxes? Why? Or? They've been doing it for 50, 60 <laughs> years. Why would they stop now? They will hit pause. However, Why? because of a, a quirk of the way they wrote the bill, I think they'll have to start talking about it again kind of soon. All the individual cuts in there expire at the end of 2025. Right. Um, I mean, th- th- this is a budget gimmick so that on paper the cost of the bill is less because the revenue comes back after the expiration but it sets up a, a fiscal cliff, and uh, with the corporate cuts not expiring and being permanent, I think it's fair to say it uh, really demonstrated the priorities of this legislation. Well, yes, but it's also reflected the priorities of the Republican Party over the last 15 years. I mean, they've been wanting to cut corporate tax rates for a long, long time. So this is nothing new. And, and what I, I'd like to point out, this is not a Trump plan. This was something that would have happened under any Republican president, had it been Marco Rubio, had it been Jeb Bush, had it been Chris Christie, you would have seen dramatic cuts in the corporate rate. And this was a, a, the reason this passed as smoothly as it did was Trump stayed out of it largely. The White House had very little input in what was going on, which is why we didn't see a large train wreck like we did one of the reasons why we saw with the health care stuff. Now, the White House has had a uh, – they, they weren't involved in the legislation, but they were a big part of the public-facing you know, the sell job. And Trump and Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, kept saying rich people won't get a tax break. There will be higher taxes on rich people, which is just a, a flaming lie, <laughs> a weirdly <laughs> flaming lie. Uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders kept saying it this week. I, it's flabbergasting that you could say that about this bill. Uh, the 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 better, uh, less dishonest claim you can make is that well they don't benefit disproportionately, which also right. is not true. That would be untrue still, but that would at least be regular political lying where you're you <laughs> well, know you're just hang sort of on. Now I mean spinning. Republicans in the past have not said that they've said that by cutting taxes on the job creators everyone benefits. That was been that was the explanation during the Reagan tax cuts. That was the explanation during the second round of George W. Bush's tax cuts. Remember the ones for capital gains tax and yeah. dividends. 
and the, and you know you could either disagree or agree with that premise, and most economists disagree with it, by the way. But nonetheless, it was intellectually honest. But for them to say, as you point out, that um, this thing is going to benefit the middle class the most, well, that's just not true. Well, and that it's going to specifically hurt Trump. I mean, he said, "Oh, I'm going to really pay in this," and that's. You know, right. just well, seemingly he, not here, true. Here, we here, don't know about his tax returns. It's right? such a That's big true. lie. But uh, here's the irony, guys. I mean, normally people like tax cuts, right? Normally people like tax cuts. And this tax cut plan is polling in the 20s or 30s. Now, why is that? Because when Donald Trump says something, people reflexively assume now that the opposite is true. So when Donald Trump said this is going to help the middle class, most people probably thought, huh, looks like this is not going to help the middle class, even though in this particular case, it kind of does. That's where they are. This now, is what happens when you burn your credibility. Republicans engaged in some serious media criticism this week. Paul Ryan said people were misrepresenting the bill on TV. Um, their core claim is that across income groups on net, there's a, a tax cut for every income group. Now, that's true. However, it is also true that across income groups on net, some people don't get a tax cut because of it shakes out with the loss of uh, deductions in, within each income group, there are tax hikes. And that created a situation where when, when Republicans were asked point blank repeatedly throughout this process if they could guarantee that every household would get a cut, they couldn't say yes because they wouldn't lie like the president would. <laughs> so the, in other words, the fact of how they wrote their legislation uh, had a built-in political headache for them. And I, I, I have thought that the, the news coverage accurately reflected this. Uh, for the most part, and that you know, that's one reason the bill's not as popular as it might have been. Well, there's ironies that the the Senate Republicans sent out a chart on Twitter, I assume via other means as well, showing what the percentage cut is in your income tax. Uh, I guess it's in the amount paid by income group, right? So if you're way at the bottom, less than ten thousand, you get a six percent cut. If you're between twenty and thirty thousand, you get a sixteen point three percent cut, which is the biggest one. But guess what? From there on through the middle class numbers, right up to 200,000, the numbers between 9 and 7.4. And the rich, the people between 200,000 and a million are getting a 9 to 9.5%. So right away in the material that they sent out themselves, they're showing that if you're wealthier, you're better off yeah. than if you're not. So uh, Now, it's, uh, they didn't have to write their legislation that way. It's remarkable that in a bill in which they have abandoned what you know their own – fiscal responsibility credo to add more than a trillion dollars of na- uh, to the national debt, they couldn't find money for tax cuts for all households. Right. And then acted as though that would somehow be tricky to do. No, this is, uh, this is something that uh, is baffling because most of the people who end up paying more are doing so because they insisted on getting rid of the standard deduction for people and replacing it with the large I'm, I'm sorry replacing the the personal exemptions for people and replacing it with the standard deduction enlarging that and that ended up hurting some people unnecessarily what was the point of this simplification because this new code is not any simpler guys i mean but this is way more a complicated <laughs> yeah a big big postcard <laughs> in really tiny print that's the only way it's going to fit on it well postcard. no you well you can put it on a postcard this would be in 2019 people could see this postcard uh you're still going to need a few pages of worksheets you shouldn't to fill put out the postcard, your right? Like, right? Well, you, on a postcard. But you get. <laughs> I mean, do people, people love postcards? Nobody files. Everyone files through a, a prepared a preparer or on the internet. 
Yeah. Well, no one uses the uh, the mail. When we've we've done polling on this, and and it showed that most people thought that the tax code is too complicated, and those people who wanting to sell the idea of a corporate tax cut latched on that as a as a talking point. We're going to simplify it. We're going to make we're going to compress the number of brackets. Remember that we're going to have fewer brackets because somehow that'll make filing taxes easier. No, it won't. Not yeah, in any you'll way. still be in one bracket. Right. I mean, the problem, right, is that a lot of the things that are complicated are those are the ways that you pay less in taxes. Exactly. Because the complications are things that you can deduct. That, that's exactly the trade-off here. That's why it's, it's and the not reason su- there are deductions is that them. people over time have thought these things are important. I mean, the reason there is a child tax credit at all is people thought, hey, you know what? Parents ought to have, get some help in those in those early years when you're trying to like pay for clothing and food and, and daycare, et cetera, et cetera. That's why this happened. Are we suggesting this shouldn't happen? No. That's why it was enlarged, in fact. So the whole idea that all deductions and all credits are bad, okay, well, we could do that. We could have a we could have a flat tax. We could have like a sales tax like they do in Europe. I don't know if that's much better. So there were a couple a couple head scratchers on the Senate vote. Bob Corker, who was against an earlier version of this bill, voted for it. And he just said, nah. And he was against it because he didn't want to add to the deficit, right. he said. Yeah. Not and one so, dollar, he said. Yeah. Not so one dollar. The new Pretty version about it. would, you know, if anything, add more to the deficit than the old version. Um. And so people were searching for reasons for why he changed his vote. And one thing that came out was the the final version of the bill uh, allowed real estate, you know, firms that own real estate to deduct uh, based on the amount of real estate they own, which is a giveaway to people who own a lot of real estate, which happens to include Bob Corker. And it also happens to include someone else. Anyone? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. the, the guy, president. Builder, the president yeah. does okay, and he does a lot more okay with that slight change than he would have otherwise. I mean, that thing—if it, it was designed for anybody, it was designed for the president because his small businesses were not going to be able to benefit I, under the Senate. Language. I don't think they bought Bob Corker's vote. I think they plausibly argued that he had nothing to do with that provision. It mirrored something that had been in the House bill, and he wasn't on the conference committee. However, I do think it's extremely fair to point out. The windfall it is for Donald Trump and Bob Corker. And also it was not in the House bill in that way. I mean the House bill had very broad language allowing all kinds of businesses set up in that manner and having capital investments to be able to take advantage of this pass-through deduction or actually in the House side, I, a pass-through I mean I, th- I think Bob Corker just saw this passing and wanted to be on the team. I think there was also a concern that they would be under pressure without John McCain and there you know this is a theory that you know Bob Corker wanted to do John McCain a favor by uh by voting for it cuz John McCain had supported another head scratcher is Susan Collins she said I'll support this if uh Congress passes and the president signs into law these other pieces of health legislation that offset the effect of repealing the Obamacare requirement that everyone buy insurance yeah so those things did not happen at all, and she just voted for it anyway. Yeah. Well, remember she's a Republican and not a Democrat. There's a reason for this, right? Republicans believe taxes should be lower. She believes this. And this was a priority of the Republican Party for years and years to cut the corporate tax rate. So yeah. if you want a future in politics, if you're Bob Corker who thinks maybe someday I'll run for governor, if you're Susan Collins who thinks I'd like another term and you want to stay in the Republican Party, you better vote for this. That's pretty easy. A couple other things. Uh, what a couple other things I'd point out is that uh, some of the most noxious 
provisions, the politically problematic provisions that were in the House version of the bill, such as repealing the uh, deduction for student loan interest, for medical expenses, uh, that stuff didn't make it in the final bill. So they shedded some of that bad stuff that was hurtful and basically made up for it by hiking the corporate tax rate from 20 to 21%, which <laughs> corporations were like, okay, fine. No, no, we don't, we don't mind. That's not a big deal because they are pinching themselves how much money they'll get out of this that they're announcing massive stock buybacks left and right. Stock buybacks do not raise your wage. They increase the value of shares, uh, shares which are uh, in the U.S., Mostly owned by the richest ten percent of people. Oh, that's right. I mean, the vast majority, like eighty-three percent of all stock, is owned by the top ten percent. The uh, in terms, in terms you know, of wealth. I think why one reason people may not like the bill, why it polls so poorly, even though most people get a modest tax cut, is that they have eyes and they can see that corporations are getting this large much larger and more significant cut that is permanent, whereas they are getting something more modest and is temporary and will require a uh, serious fiscal cliff trauma in eight years just to maintain. That's my theory. Okay. Uh, I don't know if I necessarily agree. I don't think they care about fiscal cliffs one way or the other. They don't care about that, but yeah. you know, the, people are aware of who benefits more than them in this Th- bill. That's true, but I, I think it goes. It's, it's even simpler. I think that because the president is saying it's good for them, they assume the opposite that it's not. Okay. Simple. That's pretty easy. I mean, he has less than zero credibility for a lot of people. I mean, and going forward, this is going to give Republicans more of a justification, right, to say that we need to cut other stuff because look how bad this deficit is, right? Like, that's that's a concern, too. Totally in fair. the future, they're going to be like, man, we oh, the deficit is so terrible, we need to get rid of food stamps. Uh, that is what's going like to that. happen. Yeah. yeah. Which they would say anyway, but now they've made it uh, even bigger. So Well, that, that, was the, that was the explicit argument made by people like Grover Norquist. He's the guy who wanted to get government so small that he was able to strangle it in the bathtub. Well, Put it in a postcard. Uh, <laughs> to put it on a <laughs> postcard. <laughs> right. Well, they couldn't actually just go and cut it. They tried that under Newt Gingrich. So they decided instead just to starve the beast. This is more beast starving. We're just going to get into further and further debt until finally we – precipitate a calamity and have to cut all kinds of things. That's the strategy. Uh, So, dear listener, you may remember that on this program I boldly predicted uh, multiple times (laughs) that the bill would not pass, and I said that if it did pass, I would eat a shit sandwich. So I wanted to let you know that I went to Subway this (laughs) week and I got a a foot-long shit on hearty Italian, and, uh, you know, I'm a man of my word. And uh, at least fully. That's very gross. That's not that's, on the menu. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> that's very rude to Subway. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love Subway. Okay. I, in truth, I got a Veggie Delight, and it was great. Okay, that didn't happen either. <laughs> I'm just trying to be nice. Uh, I uh, my prediction was bad. It was bold and bad. I told you. It's good to be bold. Yeah, you told me. All right, SV Date, Elise Foley. Thank you so much. We'll be You're right welcome. back. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. 
Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, it's me, Arthur Delaney, and I just wanted to wish you a Merry Christmas. I also wanted to offer you the special gift of giving So That Happened four or five stars on iTunes, but certainly not fewer than four or Santa will die. Thank you. Hi, I'm Elise Foley, and I'm here with my colleague Arthur Delaney. Hello. And uh, Adrian Reyna, who is the membership director at United We Dream, um, which is a huge uh, network of dreamer organizations, undocumented youth, and a DACA recipient yourself. Um, And we are going to talk about uh, what is going on with DACA and the government shutdown, which is changing all the time. (laughs) So uh, we're going to hope that it's current by the time that you all are listening to this, but um, the latest seems to be that Senate Democrats have uh, basically caved on this issue for right now. They had, you know, a lot of them have said that they wouldn't vote for a spending bill unless it protects dreamers uh, who are in a pretty uh, risky situation because of President Donald Trump's decision to end this Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program in the House. Um, some members are still saying that they do think that there's a chance. So for you, you've been going to the Hill a lot. What uh, what are you hearing? What are you thinking is going to happen right now? Yeah. So, I mean, right now the, the situation is that one in the House, um, Speaker Paul Ryan keeps saying that he has the votes. He does not need the Democrats to get anything done. Um, reports are coming out that he, in fact, doesn't have the votes, right? So I think that it it's simple, right? We don't have to complicate this too much. If the Republicans don't have the votes that they need to keep the government open, they have to go to Democrats to get votes. And in order to get those votes, they need to prioritize the, the policy pieces that they want to pass before year end. And the Democrats in both the House and the Senate have committed to immigrant youth. Had Nancy Pelosi look me in the face. We had Chuck Schumer look at our members in the face and say, We're going to get this done. We are going to use our leverage in the negotiations to ensure that you get protections by year, by end of year. And so as all of this is playing out, right, everything is coming down to the hour as the deadline approaches. Um, Democrats need to be prepared to say, this is what we need. This is what we need in order to give you our votes. It's about leadership. It's about commanding the party. And we know that that's caving in both the Senate and the House. Why? Because you name it, the plenty of headlines that have come out over, will Democrats shut down the government? The truth is this. A, 
tons of people in the overwhelming majority of Americans support the DREAM Act, support undocumented youth, getting protection by year end. Um, we know that people know that the Republicans control the government. They set the agenda. They set the priorities of what goes on in Congress. And so the, the arithmetic is here simple, simple. Democrats need to step up. They need to fulfill their promises. They need to stick together in this. So far, we've got nine senators in the, in the Senate who have committed to vote no on a, on a CR that does not include DREAM. And we see that as leadership, and we commend that. So uh, let me just recap. As of Thursday morning, the way I had understood the situation was that Nancy Pelosi had said, we're not going to vote for a bill to just keep the government open for a limited amount of time unless it contains protections for dreamers. Sort of. So uh, in her, her, she sent a letter to her colleagues saying that they're urging them to vote no. And um, – it listed a few different things. So one way that I think that uh, the Democratic leadership has been a little bit uh, hedging on this is by listing a lot of different priorities, which makes sense. I mean, they do have legitimately a lot of different priorities. But I think that one possible outcome is that, you know, they they could – you guys can tell me if this seems wrong – that they, they could get maybe a concession on something else and then say, okay, fine, you know, we'll we'll – keep the government open and we'll deal with this in January um, because there are a lot of various things the Democrats are are trying to get there's, right now. There's children's health insurance. There's Obamacare stuff. There's disaster aid. And it's it's mixed up politics between Republicans and Democrats on a lot of those things. Like some in each party want all of those things, including DACA, yeah? Yeah, and um, there there are uh, what it's only I think two Republicans who have said that they would vote. Uh, That's right. Yeah, so Carlos Corbello and Eliana Ross Leighton, both Florida um, Republicans uh, and uh, more um, immigrant friendly, I would say, than a lot of other Republicans. <laughs> yeah. Does that seem That's right. reasonable? I mean, you know, that an important thing to point out here is that these are these should not be like radical issues of the left. We're talking about health insurance for kids, yeah. disaster relief. Yeah. DACA. Like this is not like this is a bipartisan thing. You have had senators from both parties, members of Congress in the in the House from both parties come out talking about how this needs to get done by the end of the year. It's super important. Everyone's talking about it. There's more than 80% of the public support, something to get done. And so the, the, the reality here is, is that these are, this is not a difficult play like for Democrats, right? Like even if it's a, well, you know, I think that they need to be – when it gets to the details, they need to be strategic about keeping their priorities together because otherwise they're giving away and they're giving a signal to Republicans that they're willing to take scraps, right? And that's just not working from a place of leadership. So what Republicans uh, are simply saying, uh, you know, maybe not Paul Ryan and others, but uh, it could come to that. They're just saying, well, Democrats want to hold government funding hostage. And they're also saying, well, look, we'll do this next month. It's it's fine. We'll just do it. A lot of them are saying, like, well, we have till March. It's fine. Uh, we'll deal with it later. Um, 
Can you explain, like, why why would it be so bad? Why yeah, does it need to no. be done? No, yeah. it needs to be done now because I mean, we're talking about 122 people every day losing protection. And what does that mean if people lose so protection? So when you get your DACA, uh, it, DACA is not like an on and off switch thing. It Your work permit has an expiration. It usually expires every two years. So there are people whose expiration dates are approaching, right? Um when your DACA expires, you no longer are eligible for work authorization. Usually in most states, your driver's license expires. Um, you don't have the whole concept of deferred action means that you no longer are protected from deportation. So in the case of someone like Osman in Pennsylvania, someone who is a father of, uh, has a, is a father, driving down the street, gets pulled over, his driver's license is expired. And that was enough for the police officer to put him in jail. And once you're in jail, ICE gets notified, and they come over, they pick you up. And he, So he was put in deportation proceedings, and the work of the community got him out. But at the end of the day, that is the story that hundreds and now thousands of immigrant youth face every day, losing their jobs unable to pay for homes that they purchased. I mean, we're talking about 5% of people who got DACA that were un- that bought a house, and now we're talking about removing their sources of income to be able to pay on their homes. Nothing wrong with that, right? And I think that uh, we haven't bought a house, and I think that now it's a moment where Democrats need to put their foot down and say, no, we don't. We cannot wait until March. I don't see anything. I don't see anyone saying, oh, how crazy that you want to get this done now. Like it's the right moral thing to do. And they just need to step on it regardless of what, you know, Republicans old playbook that they do all the time, which is kick this can down the road with this immigration thing. The more you can kick it down the road, the less you have to deal with it. Yeah, we've seen this a bunch of times before. Yeah. Them saying, okay, this is not the time, we'll do it later. Right. And it seems like the big risk for doing it on its own, right, and why uh, people thought it would be better to do it as a spending bill is that once you start doing it on, on its own, you have these people who want to load it with all sorts of oh, other yeah. things. Mm-hmm. Um, Democrats have said they'd do some border security stuff, but uh, – you know, even dreamers, you don't really want to uh, have protections for yourself at the expense of your family and your community, Absolutely. right? So what, what, what are, are some of the what, bad yeah, things? Yeah, what are the things that you're worried about there? Well, you know, so I don't know if you heard, but we have been advocating for what we call a clean dream act, right? And for us, that means like, think about it this way. I've been here for three weeks fighting to make sure that both of my sisters who have DACA and I can have protection by the end of the year. Right, ensure that we get something permanent uh, for the people who are directly impacted. And then imagine having to go home for the holidays and tell your parents, well, guess what? Like, I'm protected, but this was what we got in exchange. We got more detention centers. We got more ICE officers out in the street. We have more money to make, to like enable them to be able to come after you. That's not a happy conversation to have at the Christmas dinner table. And and so for us, it's important that we detail exactly, A, uh, we've been working with the Southern Border Communities Coalition on the border stuff. They have had a lengthy list of recommendations of things that can be done at the border. 
Um, so we are following the leadership of people at the border. When it comes to things that impact our families, we are drawing a clear line. We don't believe and we dispel this notion that in order to protect a group of immigrants, other immigrants need to be criminalized and like negatively impacted. So Republicans aren't uh, outright against this. It's like, it's like you said, there they, they some, said just I mean, not right now. There are some now. Republican people who are co-sponsors of the DREAM Act itself. And yeah, a lot of them say like, oh, yeah, we, we do think that something should be done. But yeah, it's just the question of when and how much they loaded up with things. I mean, even the, the president who ended this program um, promised to do so while he was campaigning. Um, he has said he has like a great heart for dreamers. He wants Congress to do something. Uh, at the same time, he's demanding that um, it include various things. Uh, Senator Dick Durbin, who's kind of been the main champion in the Senate uh, for dreamers, um, was saying to uh, me and a few other reporters that on Wednesday that they had this meeting with the White House um, and they just got this laundry list of all of the various restrictionist proposals that, you know, people want. He didn't go into details, but, you know, you can kind of guess that that means their, you know, their term is chain migration, but letting people sponsor family members to come to the U.S. This We're talking U.S. citizens and legal permanent residents sponsoring people um, and uh, ending the diversity visa lottery, cutting legal immigration just in general, uh, you know, more detention, et cetera, et cetera. And it sounds like if that's what the White House is pushing for, then it's not necessarily such a good faith effort right to actually do something to help dreamers because because mm-hmm. they could do yeah. just the one thing yeah yeah i mean i think that you know um all of what as you're going through that i just like hear and see steve miller you know just like rapidly trying to advance this agenda of i mean you this do the math Stephen miller a, a white house policy advisor yeah. who used to work for jeff sessions now attorney general used to be senator kind of the most ardent opponent of immigration reform. In Absolutely. And and you do the math here, right? Like, think about it this way. They've been ending TPS programs. They've been ending DACA. They've been doing, like, all, all the removing protections from people. And then you add more resources and more strict immigration laws that would put these people into a deportation pipeline. Like, this is this is a very clear plan to put as many people that look like me, as many people that look like my parents, into a jail and into a bus to go to Mexico. Like, that is their plan. And so, as we talk about, like, negotiations, we need to understand that they are in a position that is morally corrupt, and we need to call that out. And that's what we are doing when we demand for a Clean Dream Act, and also for Democrats. Frankly, to be honest with you, it's like, as a person that's directly impacted, it drives me crazy to go into an office and be asked to take a picture with a senator and a member of Congress to say that they support dreamers. But then when it comes comes right down to it, the one thing that they can do, which is to vote no on the CR if dream is not attached to it, it's it's baffling to me. To me, that is concretely, and we are ready to label them as what they are, enablers of the deportation uh, campaign that the White House wants to drive, and we're ready to label them as the deportation caucus. 
Like we and that will follow them for the rest of 2018, and we will make sure that everybody knows that they were complicit in the deportation of immigrant young people like me. All right. Well, we'll see. We have a little bit more uh, time until the that actual vote. Um, so we'll see what happens on that, and then uh, I think probably more likely, right? We'll see what happens in January. Um, thank you so much for coming no, in. Thank you all. Really thank appreciate you. it. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll have more updates soon. Yes. Welcome back and season's greetings. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined in studio by my colleague Paul Blumenthal. Hello. Happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. And through the magic of technology, we are also joined by the disembodied voice of Zach Carter, our colleague in New York. Season's greetings. Now, we wanted to talk about the season and the reason for the season and also some famous literature that is really resonant right now. And uh, by that, I am referring to the 1988 film Scrooged, starring Bill Murray. Fantastic movie. Uh, which was, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but it was actually based on a much older work by a man named Charles Dickens uh, called A Christmas Carol. Wow, who knew? I didn't know. Uh, but Zach, Zach Carter, in the course of his uh, academic research onto John Maynard Keynes, I think it sounds like you've stumbled on something funny about Charles Dickens. Zach, please explain. So – I've I, like a lot of people. I grew up just loving a Christmas Carol. Uh, when I was a kid, I didn't really think about all you know, like the Christian social gospel or or you know wh- where this sort of story came from in the history of Christianity. Um, but but I just I just thought it was a cool story. You know, it's been adapted a zillion times. There's a Muppets version and a Looney Tunes version and a, well, let's have a let's have a recap of the story. Tell us what happens. Yeah, give us a, a quick synopsis. I mean, of the in plot. a Christmas Carol. Well, spoiler alert, uh, everyone, uh, it, it has a happy ending, but it opens very tragically uh, with uh, this man named Ebenezer Scrooge, who is a miserable financier, uh, fabulously wealthy, but very cruel, shuns his own family, mistreats his employees. Um, and then after being visited by three spirits, the ghost of Christmas past, present and future, uh, Scrooge comes to see the error of his ways, uh, warms to his family and his employees uh, makes Bob Cratchit a partner in his firm, and uh, everyone lives happily ever ever after. Uh, it's a great story, um, and it's a very pure distillation, I think, of uh, of the social gospel, which was, you know, this this idea that one of the primary duties, if not the primary duty, of a good Christian is to uh, take care of the poor or or work to eradicate uh, poverty. And this was becoming really popular in England in the 18th century. I think, in large part because uh, the country's having to grapple with the emergence of urban poverty. There had always been rural poverty, in a sense. You know, people didn't really work in the winter uh, prior to around the 19th century because, you know, there just wasn't anything to do on the farm. Uh, but, But you saw this new underclass of people, factory workers in the city, who just lived sort of lives of perpetual... Uh, frankly, misery, where they had to work all the time and they never got a break and they were always poor and they died young. Uh, And this seemed intolerable to a lot of Christians uh, at the time. But Christmas, the holiday, was sort of a weird thing. 
it was it was weird because only a couple of centuries earlier, uh, Oliver Cromwell, under uh, the in the throes of a very different version of Christianity, had uh, had basically. Uh, banned Christmas in in England. You were not allowed to celebrate it, uh, and so I mean, he 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 cut the king's head off because they were putting too many flowers on the table at there, church. Yeah, very very severe Basically. theology, right? <laughs> um, but I mean, literally, we talk about a war on Christmas sometimes today, like Fox News does, because people have the wrong, you know words on a cup at Starbucks or something, but there really was a Puritan war on Christmas. You could not go out caroling in England in, in the 17th century. It was a crime. Uh, and, and so by the, the 19th century, this has changed. Uh, they've, they've realized that, you know, we can't ban the celebration of Christmas. And the reason they, they banned it, of course, is because the holiday has always been kind of a minor theological event in Christianity. Uh, the celebration really has a lot more to do with all of these uh, what Christians call pagan celebrations of the winter solstice. So like all the holly and mistletoe and yule logs and Christmas trees, all this. These are like, you know, tribal celebrations. Uh, they have nothing to do with, you know, Jesus or, or Christianity. Uh, and I think a Christmas carol, one of the reasons it's been so powerful and why it stayed with people so long is because it uses these Christian themes uh, in the service of this, you know, totally you know, not there's there's nothing to do with the nativity in the story. It, it basically says, "Hey, you can enjoy all your pagan frivolities uh, so long as you keep this this kind of spirit, uh, which didn't exist at the time. There was no such thing as like the Christmas spirit in the 19th century." I love that they came up with that. Christmas is my favorite time of year. Yeah, I I love it, and and kids love it. But like you know, all the things that kids love about Christmas, like Rudolph and Frosty the Snowman, like Santa didn't even have a red and white suit when Charles Dickens wrote a Christmas Carol in 1843. Uh, so all of that sort of owes a debt to to this book. So why is it particularly resonant to you right now? What's going on with a Christmas Carol today? Well, I just moved to New York, and apparently every year in New York. Uh, the Morgan Library, which is the the sort of shrine to John Pierpont Morgan, who is this Gilded Age financier, really invented American banking as we know it. Um, it's his house, and all of his old stuff is there. And he was super rich, so he he bought up like Egyptian statuary and these Assyrian cuneiform tablets, and had this just absolutely gorgeous, you know, gilded mosaic ceiling in his library. All this stuff. Um, it seemed to me at first pretty ironic that this guy bought up – this guy who's basically a real-life Dickens villain bought up all of this Dickensia, <laughs> including the original manuscript of A Christmas Carol, which is currently on display there. It's, I think it's on display there until the middle of January. It's a great exhibit. It's totally fun and worth going to. But when you go, you're like, whoa, this guy basically has this major relic of the social gospel – on display like a hunting trophy, like like something he conquered. And you can't tell if it's if he was self-aware and tormented by this or if he was gloating and really into it. There's like a um, one of my favorite pieces from the exhibit is this this letter that Dickens writes uh, while he's writing a Christmas carol because he was dead broke when he was writing a Christmas carol. He's basically begging his lawyer for a loan so he can he can make it through until the sales of the book come through. Uh, and I mean, why does this super rich banker buy a copy of a letter from Charles Dickens begging for a loan? It's either gross or just totally like not, you know, lacking in self-awareness. 
But Zach, he's, if it's on public display, isn't that the social gospel you were just telling us about? Isn't, you know, he's this benevolent rich man is letting you go look at it. That just warms my heart. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, look, the, the Morgan Library, I think, uh, I don't want to talk too much trash about the, the, the museum itself. Cause, I mean, I think they're, they're aware, the curators there are aware of the uh, you know, sort of, let's say, complexities of the fact that this guy has, like, I mean, forget A Christmas Carol. Like, why are these, you know, these treasures from ancient, like, Babylonia <laughs> in New York in this rich guy's library? That seems kind of fucked up, right? Um, and, and the library seems to try to be, like, negotiating or navigating that, uh, you know, the, the people who are taking care of this now are not the people who bought it up. Um, and, and I think, to, but I think to some extent, the fact that it's there this year in particular, uh, you know, they, they do this display every year. This year, there's, like, four other Dickens books about Christmas that are there, which are all not nearly as good as A Christmas Carol, but but fun stories with the same themes. We're about to watch Congress. I mean, just this past week, they passed a tax bill you guys talked about earlier that transfers trillions of dollars of the national wealth to the super rich. Uh, you know, this is just kind of the way things work now. Um, at least for, for the next few years, rich people get to run the show. And if you want to see great treasures, you have to hope that they open their libraries to you. Uh, you. You don't have a right to go around seeing things because you're a member of a democracy who's a citizen, uh, you know, these, these are things that, that rich people uh, grant you access to as a privilege. So you think that the tax bill is Dickensian? Oh, I think it's so flagrant it would make somebody like Morgan blush. I mean, he was, uh, he was a totally ruthless financier and plutocrat, but he had these very uh, uh, Victorian sort of pruderies about himself where he, he didn't want to do things that were too ostentatious. I think he would look at this tax bill and be like, whoa, 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 guys. This is a little too flagrant. So it's not – It's the tax bill itself is regressive in that according to distributional analysis, wealthier people receive a larger percentage of the uh, reduction in overall taxes. But it's really the, the moment we're in that makes it egregious to you, right, that we've got extreme income inequality right now. Right. Look, uh, if you want to cut taxes on the rich in 1960 or even 1980, um, you know, it's probably not the sort of thing that uh, I would have put at the top of my list of priorities. But it's not so terrible in a more egalitarian society. But, you know, the the gap between richer and poor right now is wider than it's been at, I, I think, any point in American history, although these measures are, are difficult to, to deal with. Because, I mean, I don't know how you mathematically – uh, describe inequality under slavery, right? Like, I don't think the Gini coefficient is giving us the right percentage there. But, <laughs> but, but we have we have a deeply, deeply unequal society right now, and and things. You know, if you look at the last ten years, the median income for American families basically hasn't budged, but the national wealth has increased by like, you know, one and a half trillion dollars on an annual basis. We have like an economy that's. 15% larger than it was 10 years ago. Basically, all that money is already going to the super rich. There's something wrong where the productive forces and energy of our country, uh, of everybody, the fruit of that is all going to, to wildly wealthy people. Why, when you look at that system, would you want to take more of that output and make sure it stays in the hands of, of the most fabulously wealthy people the world has ever known? You raise a good point, uh, which is that Historical context for taxes, uh, you know, they're low right now relative to 
history. You know, as a share of GDP, they're low relative to other countries. They're low relative to our own history. And in the 1980s, they keep saying, well, we haven't reformed taxes since the 1980s when Ronald Reagan did it, and it was excellent, and Democrats went along with it. Yeah. But they, you know, we've cut taxes a bunch of times since then. Taxes back then were at elevated levels because we'd had a couple of huge wars, and there used to be a top marginal rate of 90%. In the 50s, yeah. In the 50s. Under so they, yeah, Reagan cut cut that and uh, you know, Kennedy, Kennedy cut that Kennedy and then cut Reagan, it, Reagan cut, cut it and further. then Reagan raised taxes three times. Right, we're not in the 80s anymore. No, it's not but I mean for conservatives, you know, it's always 1979. It is. And all the problems are all whatever happened then. And the, the next thing to do after taxes, which Paul Ryan said this week is welfare reform. You and did so, that in the 90s, man. Yeah. And, we don't uh, have that program anymore. I mean, Zach, when you look at all of this stuff and and you know, it's it's the Christmas season. And we have the Christmas spirit you just told us about from Dickens. How does does this all fit into the Christmas spirit? Cutting taxes for the rich, <laughs> slashing welfare, cutting Medicare. Uh, you know, it's it, it, some those those themes somehow uh, did not make it into the final draft of A Christmas Carol. And when you look at the original manuscript, uh, it's it's not clear they were ever cut from the drafts. Uh, I think maybe those themes. Just were never part of the uh, of the idea. Huh. Well, Zach Carter, thank you for sharing your scholarship. Paul Blumenthal, uh, you know, see you later. <laughs> uh, we'll be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Arthur Delaney, and this week we were joined by Adrian Reyna, Membership Director at United We Dream, as well as HuffPost reporters Elise Foley, S.V. Date, Zach Carter, and Paul Blumenthal. So That Happened is available on Apple Podcasts. Check out the whole family of HuffPost podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.